Well, I trust this morning you set your alarm and you woke up and you gathered yourself together, perhaps had to rush out those doors in order to rush into these doors, uh, based all on the assumption that you've come this morning to a genuine Christian church. I assume that was your assumption as you got up and came. You wanted to come to a genuine Christian church, you know, the real deal. But I guess the question for you is, how do you know? You know, how do you know that you actually this morning haven't walked into a counterfeit church? It was almost uh, 20 years or so ago that my wife and I, living in L.A., newly married, out of college, we were looking in a new place, looking for a new church home. We were church shopping, if you will, floating about from place to place, trying to see what combination of preaching and programs best met our needs, sort of the consummate church shoppers. Not the best way, frankly, to look for a church, but hey, you know, we were young, we were learning. And we had been to Grace Community Church. If you know that church, that's where John MacArthur preaches. We've been to Grace Community Church. We had been to Calvary Chapel in Orange County where Chuck Smith pastored and Fernando Ortega uh, was, was doing the music, if you're familiar with him at all. We'd even been to sort of one memorable service at a prominent Pentecostal church that about 30 minutes in left us quickly darting for the exit. But, you know, it was hard. We were frustrated. Everything was either too far. It was, it was too foreign to us. And it was then that someone at my wife's workplace invited us to go to church with them. And initially, everyone was, was friendly. People talked about God, about Jesus, about the Bible, about living in the workplace. And this was all attractive to us. And it was really close by, which when you're living and dealing with L.A. traffic, that was a huge positive, how close it was. But something over time, something just didn't quite feel right about it. We became increasingly concerned. And as we started to to look into it and try to understand what was amiss, I'll save you all the details, but it became clear to us the more we looked into it that actually the church we were attending was a cult. It wasn't a genuine Christian church. It was actually a counterfeit church. It, present, it pretended to be Christian. It dressed itself up in Christian language. As I said, it talked about the Bible. But we began to see that it was actually it was deeply coercive and it was manipulative. And it taught that one is saved not just by faith alone and Christ alone, but in Christ plus, Christ plus baptism to be saved. Christ plus a very sort of regimented form of discipling. Christ plus a very heavy emphasis on recruitment. And so back to my question, how do you know this morning that you actually haven't found yourselves in just such a gathering? Now, I I don't think you have, so no need to sort of look for those exit signs and start rushing to the doors. But it's been said that nothing dispels a lie faster than the truth which means practically that nothing exposes a counterfeit better than the genuine, the genuine deal. So to put the question another way, what are the marks? What are some of those things that ought to characterize a genuine Christian community? You know, what does genuine Christian community look like? Now, I recognize we have different kinds of listeners, different kinds of folks here this morning. So just a bit of a user's guide to our text for this morning. If you've come this morning and you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian, we are thrilled you're here. You are always more than welcome to come to gather with us. 
So just if, you, if you've come and you wouldn't think of yourself or call yourself a Christian, you may be wondering, okay, what marks a genuine Christian community? What are the kinds of things Christians believe? Because sadly, lots of people in history have used Jesus to promote their own form of man-made religion. So how can you spot the authentic from the counterfeit? You know, I think our time this morning should help you answer that question if you've come as a non-Christian. But maybe you've come as a Christian and maybe you're new to the area. Or maybe you've been in the area for a while, but for whatever reason, you find yourself looking for a new church home. You understand that to be united to Christ means you ought to be united to his body, to local churches. You gather that. And so you're looking. What are the kinds of things you should be looking for in a genuine Christian community? I think this sermon is going to be helpful for you. But I think it's also helpful just to members of UBC. As you think about our life together as a body, it can be the temptation can be to get ourselves wrapped up in vision statements and in programs. And those things can all be fine, but we just need to step back and say, okay, what are the things that ought to mark us as a body? How should we be known primarily in this community? What are those things that ought to define our corporate life together? Right, and for, for that, for answers to those questions, I want us to turn back in our Bibles to First Peter. Turn back in our Bibles to First Peter. And I forgot to write it down again, but I think if you're using a pew Bible, it's 1014. Someone just want to nod ahead if that's right? 1014. Okay, great. So if you've, if you've come, you don't have a Bible, you should find a Bible, hopefully, in the pews before you. And you can pick up where we're going to be in First Peter on page 1014. And as you turn there, recall, First Peter was largely written to a Gentile audience, right? So they're not Jewish. Um, at least not most of them, we don't think. They're scattered across much of what's modern-day Turkey about 30 years after Christ's death. And because of their faith in Christ, these were believers were becoming increasingly estranged from the Greco-Roman community about them, a community that would have prized pluralism, sort of religious inclusivism. That, that community would have prized that, but these Christians, these Jesus-only kind of exclusivist Christians, they would have found themselves increasingly at odds with such a community. So no longer in step with majority culture, they had increasingly become the objects of social ridicule, of mockery. You know, they were increasingly the butt of a joke at a holiday party or the, you know, the topic of a comic strip in the newspaper. You see, sometimes the most effective way for a society to rid itself of a group that it sees as cancerous or problematic, sometimes the most effective way to do that, it's actually not to intellectually disarm them. It's just to shame them. It's not to intellectually disarm them. It's simply to shame them to the point where identifying as a member of that group just becomes too difficult. I think that's a good thing for us to keep in mind. It's what the audience of First Peter wrestled with as we read op-ed pieces in the New York Times, perhaps, or listen to the local news or, or Bill Maher or something. We can, we can feel that kind of shame for bearing the name of Christ. So remember that, that kind of social pressure these Christians faced, a pressure that many of us feel in the boardroom, in the classroom, maybe even our own living rooms. You know, these first Christians knew that well. And Peter begins in 1 Peter 1, 1 to 12, by anchoring them in that truth that though they are sort of persecuted and scattered as exiles and as aliens, as pilgrims, they are nonetheless God's chosen. An imperishable inheritance awaits them. That's verses 1 to 12. And then anchored in that hope, in chapter 1, 13 through 21, Peter exhorts them to fix their eyes on the hope of salvation by pursuing holy lives. Right? Holiness is how believers demonstrate that they live 
right, for better hopes, for better desires, for a better Savior. It's not duty. It's an opportunity to express and to display the goodness of Christ to a watching world. And now in 1 Peter 1, uh, 22 through 2.10, Peter's going to shift, and he had been addressing them as individuals, and now he's going to start to address them as a body together, as a community and what's going to mark out this community? Well, let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the, in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You can hear echoes of, of Exodus 19 that Mark read earlier. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, so back to our question. What's to mark out sort of genuine Christian communities from counterfeits? Well, I think we see three things sort of in the three sections here in our text. The first is love for one another. Very simply, love for one another. That's really verses 22 through 25. Love for one another. But then we see a second thing in 2, 1 to 3, and that is a longing after God's word. A longing after God's word. That's really what he talks about in 2, 1 to 3. And then in 2, 4 through 10, a looking to Christ. Genuine Christian communities look to Christ. Those are sort of the foundations, the pillars on which genuine Christian community, Peter says, is built. So let's think through those things. First, love for one another, verses 22 to 25. Love for one another. We read, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly or love one another deeply from a pure heart. 
And then everything else said in 22 to 25 is meant to, to, to ground this command to love. Right? Our holiness, to pick up the theme that, that brought us into this text, our holiness is meant to be evidenced by the way in which we love one another. And he's not speaking merely of the kind of love that comes sort of naturally through biological or through familial bonds, though that love is there. The kind of brotherly love that he talks about here refers to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are part of our spiritual family. That's the kind of love that he's referencing. For in calling us to himself, God, God has issued all of us new birth certificates. So if you want to think about sort of baptism as that new birth certificate, that's what it reflects. We're brought into a new family, to a new, a new community. So my last name may be Wheeler, but in becoming a Christian, sort of my Wheelerness is secondary. You know, first and foremost, I am a Christian, which means you all are most immediately my spiritual family. Now, I may have other Christian family members, of which I have some, and I have many who are not. But as, as I live day to day, this is my sort of spiritual family. The love of one another that Peter's talking about is to be born out here among us. It's why Jesus taught in Mark 33, when he said to the crowds, if you recall, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said to those around him, here are my mother and my brothers. You see, love lies at the heart of what it means to know and to obey God. Jesus says the whole Old Testament can be summarized in that command both to love God and to love neighbor. Or we read in Romans 13, 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Or 1 John 4, 7, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. See, genuine Christian communities are comprised of those who have this kind of love for one another. Now, culturally, the challenge when I use that word love is that we use that word love culturally and we've reduced it merely to sort of feelings and emotion. So if I can draw upon another 80s music example, I'll get a little uh, adamant, I know last week through some of you, but Tina Turner, she might be a name familiar to you. She had a hit song, 1984, What's Love Got to Do With It? And if you know that song, how did she talk about love? Well, love in that song, it's the pulse of a racing heart. It's the thrill of the touch. It's that secondhand emotion. You know, love in that sense and how we tend to use it, love is something, it's something we fall into and something we fall out of. You know, we can't help ourselves. We're in love, we say. And by this understanding, though, recognize when we talk about love like that, love actually becomes our master. And we become its slave. We become captive to it, bound to drift wherever that feeling and emotion might lead us. But that's not the kind of love that the Bible calls us to have for one another. Biblically, love is commitment. It's commitment. It's seeking the good of another, even at the cost of yourself. It's sacrifice. We look to the cross. We look to how God has displayed his love toward us. And we see that commitment. We see that 
desire to do good to another, even at the cost of sacrifice. Now, emotion and desire are often a part of the equation. We just have to recognize it's not the whole equation. We love because we've been first loved by God. And in this sense, love isn't something that submits us to its will. Rather, we submit love to the bridle of God's word. We submit it to the bridle of God's word. The word is meant to both govern and guide the way we love. That kind of powerful, purposeful, biblical love, right? That is going to be far more transforming, more lasting than any kind of definition of love that the world might offer us. Now, the risk, of course, to this little young community of Christians is that the flickers of such love they might have for one another, well, they're going to be extinguished by all the growing winds of persecution about them. So just think, just put yourself in the shoes of Peter's readers for a moment. They were once part of that Greco-Roman world. The glories of Rome are all about them. The glitter of empire the marbled streets, the statues, the obelisks, right? All of those things, the pomp and circumstance, all of that was there and all of that they had to walk away from. They walked away from all that to follow who? To follow a crucified Jew. No statues, no temple, no parades in honor, no beautiful buildings to gather in, none of those marbled floors or streets. They've given all of that up. And you can imagine them thinking as the persecution arises, what in the world have we done? Why in the world did we leave all of that for this? And so in in verse 24, Peter's going to quote Isaiah 40, 6 to 8, And he's going to contrast what God has done in them by his living and abiding word. He's going to contrast that with the flower of the grass. Sort of that flower that's marching inexorably sort of toward death and toward decay. Peter's saying, listen, look around you. All the glitter of empire, all the glory of Rome. It will one day be but dust like that flower. And of course, you and I, gathering thousands of years later, studying that living and abiding word, and Rome is literally but dust and ashes. You know, the kind of thing we sort of read about in an archaeological textbook. And here we are, living, breathing people, studying this word together. They needed to be reminded of that, of what they had given up. So they, well, really what they knew, what they were headed for, so they didn't despair of what they had given up. So don't be deceived. The flames of this gospel love, right? The flames of this love must not be extinguished by the persecution that was growing about them. And it's this kind of love that is to mark genuine gospel communities. Not a love just merely of affinity or convenience, but an alien love that simply has no other worldly explanation. Why would these two people love one another? They have nothing in common. Of course, except Christ. In which case, it makes it entirely right that they would love one another. So to put it another way, to members of UBC, if I can just speak to you, is your love for the members of this body, is it practically any different from the love you might have for sort of other groups in your life? 
You know, is the love you have for other members in this body, is it in any way meaningfully, practically different from the love you would have for other groups of people in your life? Because you realize that your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ here at UBC, they're closer to you, right? They're closer to you than any of your Saturday football buddies or your sorority sisters or even, you know, some of those in your own biological family. This is the spiritual family. Remember Jesus' words, who are my mother and my brothers? As the heat turns up outside these walls, out there, as it turns up, we're going to need the love of one another if we're going to survive in here. So practically, again, just speaking to the members of UBC, how do you seek to uniquely love those in this body? How do you seek to do that? Let me just give you a few, a few examples, a few suggestions. One, hospitality. A great way to show this kind of love to one another. Open up your home. You don't have a home. You say, I have an apartment. I can't really do this. Well, I'll never forget a few years ago, uh, living back in D.C., and a student from Georgetown said, hey, why don't you come over after church? I'd love to have you over to the house for a meal. And I thought, oh, this poor kid, he just, he doesn't know I got a family of six and, you know, four kids. And he said, no, no, I, oh, I know. I want you all to come over. I just thought, college student in his dorm, inviting us all over, family of six. At one level, it was the strangest thing in the world. I'm thinking, what are all of his, you know, the folks in the dorm going to think? But of course, at another level, it makes perfect sense. We have Christ in common. He's seeking to encourage. He's seeking to show hospitality. That's the kind of hospitality that ought to mark us. Not just people like us, right? But those who are older and younger from different backgrounds, different experiences. Because as we gather together in Christ, we remind each other, he is whom we have in common. And we're going to be surprised to find and learn the kind of relationships that God will build in here. Relationships we will need with one another. But, you know, another suggestion, pursue a, pursue a one-on-one discipling relationship. Pursue a kind of discipling relationship. Get together with another Christian within the body just with the express purpose of doing them spiritual good. You know, the assumption in scriptures is that we're all seeking to make disciples. We're all seeking to help lead others to heaven. So we're sharing the word with them. We're praying together. And we want to be those who have the word shared with us and prayed with us. We want to be a part of that work. Discipling isn't something that just sort of hardcore, super spiritual Christians do. It's the assumption that all Christians do. So I recall just in college, a 50-year-old accountant in Jersey, 50-year-old accountant saying, listen, let's get together weekly, and I just want to try to help encourage you follow Christ. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I, I don't have any of the same interests. He's, he's considerably older than I was. He was an accountant, not something I was interested in falling into. We didn't listen to the same music, didn't have any of the same hobbies. And yet, you know, after a year of meeting with him, I felt ashamed just after a few weeks in, just to think, oh, my goodness, I was the one who was sort of flaking on the guy I didn't want to meet and how he had been such a blessing to me. It looked a little odd to some of those, and we didn't have fraternities. We had these things called eating clubs. They're just co-ed. But, we, you know, it looked a little weird to them to have this old guy sitting in there with a bunch of college students. But, man, he blessed me immensely in helping me to follow the Lord. Those kinds of discipling relationships, well, that should be common among us here. You know, just another practical, very simple way, pray. You know, what is your prayer life for members of this body? One of the ways that we reveal, I think, our maturity is when our prayers are increasingly marked with a concern for others. So how, how is the concern for others marking your own prayer life this morning? I think there's an advantage in prayer sometimes that other disciplines don't have because it's, we might do other things so that we might be seen. 
so perhaps we might gain some advantage out of it. But, you know, prayer, we do that. That's between us and the Lord. No one ever sees what we do. There's no direct advantage we gain when we privately pray for that other member of the church. And for those of us in the home or for those of us consumed with a job, it's got lots of travel or long hours, we can do prayer really at any point and at any time. And in Lord willing, Stephen was talking about that membership directory. You know, that's going to have pictures in it, and it's going to have a list of those who are part of this body. That's going to be a wonderful tool for you to keep in your Bible to be praying for one another. It's going to have in the neighborhood of around 31 pictures, one day for uh, yeah, one page for each day of the month, roughly. Just a great discipline. Start praying for the body together. Some suggestions of how we can practically love one another. And imagine, just imagine, if you're thinking about prayer, if, what God might do if you prayed regularly for members of this church. Imagine what God might do for them as you prayed regularly for them. Imagine what God might do in your own heart. Imagine how he might put away the kind of envy and bitterness that can grow and creep up as you pray for those folks and desire their prosperity and their well-being. And imagine what God might do in this place if we are increasingly marked as that kind of a body. But genuine Christian communities aren't just marked by love for one another, but also by a longing after God's word. That's what he picks up in 2, 1 to 3, a kind of longing after God's word. Because if we are those, Peter's saying, who have been born anew by this living and abiding word of God, and we're called to love our brother, then we must rid ourselves of those vices that would tear apart the fabric of that love. That's the connection really between 2, 1, and 3 and what came before. He's saying just we got to rid ourselves of those vices that would tear apart the fabric of that love. So we're to put away things, he says, like malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy and slander. So just you know, take envy for a moment. Why, why should we be putting such things away in our own life? Well, think, what does envy do? You know, practically, envy, it robs us of our joy It lies to us, envy does. And envy tells us that God's provision is not enough. Right? That happiness can only be had when I have more success than he does. Or I have more beauty than she does. Envy, in the most twisted way, envy just begins to breed hatred in our own hearts. Because it actually says, I will be happier when he or she has less. It prevents us from rejoicing with others as we're called to do. And it's why Proverbs, if you know Proverbs 14.30, speaks of envy as rot. Envy is what causes us to rot from the inside out. Uh, It was Gore Vidal who said, he's just an, an author and thinker who wrote rather prolifically, and he said, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. I think sadly many of us probably know what he means. But I hope we will know less of what he means. Envy left unchecked in this body will take root and it will cause us to rot and to die from the inside out. Or take slander. You know, we would never dream of taking a weapon like a a bat or something to someone after the service. To bludgeon them after the service. We wouldn't dream of doing such a thing. 
And yet that's exactly what we do, metaphorically speaking, with the weapon of our own mouths. Right? Each word that we give is like a blow. That juicy word of gossip about someone, a blow. That unkind word about another is a blow. That subtle insinuation, that subtle insinuation is a blow. That simple shrug of the shoulders when someone says something to you about another person. You know, you can, you can be even passively participating in all of these ways when we slander, when we're not seeking to use our mouth to build others up. It bears rottenness. That's what the fruit is rotten in the body. Each word a blow. And of course, the problem is the bruises of slander just never heal quite so quickly, do they? We remember those things. Well, all of these things, Peter's saying, listen, all of that, and I could just keep going, it's all inimical to, lo- inimical to love, right? It seeks to promote the self through the destruction of another. That's what these things tend to do. And so Peter says, listen, that's the way of the world out there. That's what it can be like out in the world, It's not the kind of treatment Christians should expect in here. It's that alienation and rejection, yet you may experience it out there, but it should not be part of the life of a loving fellowship of believers. The church is meant to be a refuge, right, from the heat that exists out there, not another extension of it. So Peter says in 2.2, we're to put away our old life, and he says we're to what? We're like newborn infants to long. What are we to long for? To long for the pure spiritual milk. Which may, if you know your Bibles reasonably well, that may surprise you because oftentimes milk is presented in the Scriptures as as what those who are immature, who can't move on to solid foods, right? They're still on milk. They need to grow up into maturity. They need solid foods. It's used sort of more negatively. But here, actually, Peter means it positively. He means it positively. It's not meant to convey immaturity, but a kind of dependence, that we have upon the word. His point is that the word is not only the means by which new life begins in us, back in 123, but it's also the means by which life will continue so that we can be built up into salvation until that last day. So again, not immaturity, but more dependence. And if you are a mom or a dad or a grandparent, or you've just been around kids, you know that a baby that needs to nurse... Well, you know that that is a remarkable sight. It's a remarkable sight. We had four uh, kids, and many of them, at, well, not nursing at the same time, but four that were five and under. And so I remember those years really quite well. And it, when it was time to feed the desire of our kids, that desire in those infants, it was constant, it was unrelenting, and it was all-consuming. So if you're a mom or dad and you're getting in the car on the way home, you know what that ride home can be like. The child wants to feed and they start to wail and they start to moan and they start to scream. And from the top of their lungs, they are crying out because they want to be fed. And no amount of bribing and no amount of cajoling, none of that is going to work with a child that needs to feed. It is this unrelenting, sort of insatiable appetite. They need to be fed. And there's nothing we can do about it. It's a single-mindedness, a fanatical preoccupation with milk that would defy our imagination, but they understand exactly what it means. They need to be fed. Right? We know what that's like. And Peter's saying that that kind of experience, well, that's what it's meant to be like for the Christian in the Word of God. 
we are to possess that kind of single-mindedness, that kind of unrelenting preoccupation with the pure milk of God's word. That's how we grow up, Peter says, unto salvation. Peter doesn't call the Christians here. He doesn't say go embark on some pilgrimage. He doesn't say to go do that. He doesn't say just to, just to get together quietly and sort of meditate. Free your mind of all the distractions. Just try to empty yourself. Doesn't say they should do that either. Doesn't say they should meditate. Doesn't say they should pursue a host of sort of other mystical experiences. The creator God, Peter knows, is a speaking God. He's a speaking God. And he didn't leave us a statue or some other remembrance of him. So, you know, crosses are fine, but we need to remember that the final thing we look to as we gather is we don't look at that finally. We look at here. This is how we know how God speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. What we need as we gather is we need an encounter with this rational God, this word-based God, this speaking God. We need that encounter with him for our own spiritual lives. That's why we gather around the word on Sunday morning. That's why we sing it. It's why we read it. It's why we pray. And it's why majority of our time this morning is going to be spent hearing from this word. Because it's this word that sustains us unto life. It's this word that we're dependent upon to grow up unto salvation. So, brother and sister, long for this word. Pray that God would grow in you a desire to long after this word. If you're feeling dry and spiritually parched, If that's you, could it be that you've been nursing on something else? It's been Satan's way from the garden just to really just to get us to ignore and more than that, to disbelieve God's word. Right. So we reach for a drink, right, to drown out the the pain of life or we reach for a shot sort of to dull some of the sufferings of life. We might go to those things, but seeking to satiate ourselves with anything other than the word of God. Peter's saying, you realize to look anywhere else other than to this word, that's like pouring sand in your mouths. It cannot satisfy. It cannot satisfy. But when we taste the goodness of God and his word, he's saying it nourishes us and it leaves us longing for more looking for that next time, anticipating that next time when we can be fed by it. So genuine Christian communities, yeah, they love for one another. They long after this word. But thirdly, they look to Christ. They look to Christ thirdly. Because at the end of the day, what defines Christian communities most, it's not their lives, but it's Christ's life. It's not finally their love, but Christ's love. It's not their words, but his word. Those are the things finally that define true and authentic Christian community. And the logic of chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, it goes just something like this. He's saying, listen, he, he largely stops with the exhortations. And he says, listen, as you look to Christ, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, yes, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, know that you are being built up as living stones. That's verse 5. And God has a purpose in this. He's done it for a reason. So that they would become a holy priesthood. That is, they would be able to offer spiritual worship acceptable to God. That's sort of the main idea in verses 4 and 5. And then largely in verses 6 to 10, he just uses Old Testament allusions and quotes to further unpack that idea. 
And I think as we look to Christ, I think we learn three things about our lives and about our calling together as a Christian community. I think as we look to Christ, we together learn something about our character. As we look to him, we learn something about our character. Right, what does Peter say? Peter says we're living stones. Our hearts of stone, the great image of the Old Testament, he has made them hearts of flesh through the living word. We're not, and we're not living stones, he says, in isolation from one another. We're not dumped in some pile haphazardly or strewn across the floor. What does he say? We're living stones what? Well, in a, in a spiritual house, he says. We're living stones in a spiritual house. Because, of course, Christianity is more than just about individual bricks. In Christianity, yes, he saves us as individuals, but he saves us into something, into a spiritual house. Each brick is a part of something greater, something larger. What does Jesus say? I will build my church. I'll not just make disciples. I will do that, but I will build my church, he says. We are a spiritual house. For in Christ, we are the dwelling place. The spiritual house, we are the dwelling place of God. No longer do we have to go to a temple. We don't gather at a temple this morning, right? We are the temple. We are those indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We become that house, an everlasting community, which means if each of us then is an individual brick, what do bricks do? They play a role in the structure. Each of us, if we are living bricks within the body, we also have a purpose. We have a function within the body. There's this great image. Uh, Agasalius was a Spartan king. So late 300s BC, it's during a period of just fantastic Spartan dominance. And a story is told of a visiting dignitary from another powerful nation. And he comes to sort of Sparta to better understand the dominance and the glory of Sparta. And he lands and he's shocked that the mighty Sparta has no walls. No walls to protect it. The mighty Sparta, no walls. He says, I've seen your city, but where are the renowned walls of Sparta? He's heard about these walls, but he sees nothing. And the king, pointing away from the city and pointing to his column of men with their weapons glimmering in the sun, replies, there. Behold the walls of Sparta, every man a brick. Every man a brick. Every man and woman here in Christ, part of this body, a brick that makes up part of this body. That's the image that we're beginning to see. Make no mistake, this place is comprised, this campus comprised of thousands of bricks all about. But the most significant bricks are not the ones that make up these walls or the walls over in the fellowship hall. The most significant bricks are you all in this gathering to this morning, you who are in Christ. Those who gather as a part of UBC, you are the spiritual bricks and stones that make this a spiritual house. See, we're saved as individuals, but saved into a community, and each of us has a part to play. And some of you need to hear that this morning, because you look at your life, you look at the little bit amount of time you have, you look at yourself and you think, you know, my gifts are rather small, they seem trivial, almost insignificant compared to the gifts of some, you might be prone to envy perhaps, 
But, you know, for you, you need to hear, yeah, you are a living stone. It was no accident that God saved you and placed you into this body. You may feel like your time is limited or your gifts few, but God has a particular purpose in having you here. And it is to serve and it is to be an encouragement to the other bricks of the body in whatever ways he has equipped you and enabled you to do so. Each brick specifically designed by God, dependent on one another. I love First Peter 4.10. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. It's because what God's doing is he's, he's doing it in this body and he's doing it in bodies around the globe. He's been slowly, God has been about the grandest building project of all time. Right, the, the Hagia Sophia, the Burj Khalifa, if you know those buildings, or just, you know, crystal bridges or old main, whatever it is, you know, those architectural structures are but like a five-year-old Lego's little play compared to the kind of building, the kind of spiritual house that God has been about. And one day when Jesus returns, the scaffolding of that building will be torn down and we will see it, the body in all of its perfect glory. That's what we get to look forward to. So who are we? We are the chosen, he says in verse 9. We are God's treasured possession. Not so much the replacement of Israel, but the fulfillment of Israel. Those who were not a people having become a people. Those who had not received mercy, now having received mercy. Together we are a spiritual house. Something the world has not seen and will struggle to understand until they understand Christ in us. But we also look at it, we look to Christ secondly because we look to him to understand our circumstances. We look to Christ secondly to understand our own circumstances. Because he's been talking about suffering and suffering takes us by surprise. We say, hey, wait a minute, Jesus, like I'm on your team. So why the suffering? Why the challenge? Right? You win in the end, I thought. So why am I enduring this today? Well, we suffer, Peter's saying, because Jesus suffered. We're rejected by the world because we serve a king who was himself rejected by the world. That's the image of that stone in verses 6 through 8. You know, some will build their lives on that cornerstone, whereas he's saying some will stumble upon that cornerstone. They will reject Jesus. You know, that's the great division in the world that the Bible speaks to and that Peter recognizes even here. It has to do with Jesus Christ. It doesn't have anything finally to do with our political party or our skin color or our immigration status or our socioeconomic background. That's not the great division that divides us. The great division that divides us is the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is that great wedge that God has driven into the grain of human history. He's the tree that God has laid across the path of humanity. That is Jesus. He is that dividing line. And Jesus can't be sidestepped. He cannot be ignored. Like you rather look unto him for life or you stumble blindly over him until death. That's the Bible's picture. There's just not another option. And yet, of course, nothing would be so absurd to a first century Gentile than to believe that their eternal destiny in fact, the eternal destiny, not just of them, but of every person that who has or will ever live, hinges upon the crucified, a crucified Jew in some little hamlet years ago in a place that no one has ever been and ever visited. It would just be preposterous that humanity would hinge upon a guy like that. 
And of course, it might seem preposterous to those who gather over to university or are in your own workplace that a man who lived thousands of years ago, yeah, history's divided upon him. Yeah, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Why do they stumble over Jesus, Peter says? Well, they stumble because they disobey the message, verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the message. They reject the message. But notice he says something else too, doesn't he? There's another reason even behind that disobedience. He says they reject it because that's actually what they were destined for. Their disobedience was even part of God's own plan. Now that, we need to be very careful here. That doesn't mean God is the author of sin or God in any way causes us to sin. Now the Bible's all clear. You and me, we all sin willingly. But it is to say, as we see even here, that God is still sovereign over our sin. And Peter knows this. And how does he know it? He looks even at Christ's death and he sees this. So in Acts 4.27, if you remember that passage, Peter will say that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and all the people of Israel conspired against Jesus. Right? All of those individuals conspiring against Jesus. Their willful action, their conspiracy, you see right there, human responsibility. They conspired. And yet he goes on to say that they did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. Right? Divine sovereignty. We make willing choices, and yet God is still sovereign and stands behind those choices not as the author and not as the direct cause, but he is still sovereign nonetheless. Okay, why would Peter bother these Christians with that information? Well, think they're outnumbered. Their future doesn't look so promising. It looks rather bleak. The nations are literally raging and they're taking their stand against the Lord's anointed, against his living stone, against his own spiritual house. They're taking stand against it. That's all true. Therefore, God's plan must be a failure, right? No, false. That's the wrong conclusion, Peter's saying. The Lord still reigns. In a day when Jesus' adversaries were growing more numerous and they were growing in Peter among Peter's audience, they were growing more vocal, he needed them to know that. In a day where our adversaries, you might say, those opposed to Christ, appear more numerous and appear more vocal, right? we need to have the same confidence that there is nothing outside of the Lord's control. Nothing outside of his control. Even persecution and rejection don't stand outside of God's control. Right? We have to look to Jesus to understand our present circumstances. But we also look to him lastly to understand our calling. To understand our calling. Right? Notice God has built them up into these spiritual stones for a purpose. Right? They're they're to be a holy priesthood, verse 5. Which is to say, they're made up into this holy priesthood so that they can offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's their calling, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And at one level, Peter's just referencing all of the behavior that will come from a transformed life. The kind of Romans 12.1. He's thinking about it in that sense. But he specifically elaborates in verse 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Right, what we were thinking about before from Exodus 19. 
all of those things, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So in Exodus 19, we saw how Israel was called to model to the world what it meant to have a relationship with the living God. That's what Israel was called to do. And so by using this image of a royal priesthood and a holy nation, Peter's saying that the church's job, the church's job by the power of the Holy Spirit within them, well, it's to fulfill what Israel failed to do. It's to buy its own life and behavior to reveal to a watching world, to be on display, to be that billboard. This is what it likes to be in relationship with the living God. That's what the church is called to do. And we do that, of course, by sharing the gospel, by proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into his light. Right? We live out that gospel among the nations. And that's where he's going to go next. So in 2.11 to 4.11, he stops addressing them as an individual community. And he says, okay, sort of undergirded with this. You ready to go out and live? This is how you live out there. We're talking now this morning. How do we live in here? All right, he's going to move on 211 to 411. What does it look like to live out there? But he's not there just yet. He needs them to recognize that this is their calling to proclaim, but they need to do so in the knowledge that they once were not a people. They were once those who had not received mercy, which means above all people, our lives ought to be marked by humility, ought to be marked by humility. There ought to be no such thing as a proud or a pompous Christian ought to be an oxymoron. No such thing as a proud or pompous Christian. For when we stand at the foot of the cross and honestly assess ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, there simply is no room for pride. Pride evacuates and leaves in its place ample humility. The proud Christian is a Christian who's simply never grasped grace. The proud Christian... I fear if he or she continues in that kind of pride, well, that that person may not be a Christian at all. So as we proclaim his excellencies, we want to do it as those who, who in great humility can do so with joy and with hope, recognizing the kindness of the God to save us. So as you think about proclaiming his excellencies and you think about humility, what we once were, what God has made us to be, right? we want to do so happily joyfully, not in a way that would be combative, not in a way that would be angry, not in a way that would suggest some other individual is an idiot because they don't have the same answers to the questions I ask them. No, we were once those same people, not God's people, not recipients of grace. In our own public display, we want to be those in humility who honestly listen, who honestly listen to those who are stumbling over that cornerstone. We want to be clear in our presentation and we want to be humble as those who would be right in the same shoes as those we're talking to if it were not first for God's grace in us. What's truly amazing about the gospel is that we who were once God's enemies, those who, you know, sort of pathetically shaking our own puny fists at God, right? We can now bring pleasure to God by the lives that we live. Right, That God can actually delight in our small sacrifices of obedience. He delights in them. 
Whatever little we can muster up, the Father, that puts a smile on His face. Not because we're enough, but because through this Holy Spirit, we know He is enough. And He accepts those sacrifices of praise. Because notice, everything is acceptable to God, verse 5, through Jesus Christ. All of our sacrifices, all of our praise, only acceptable through, verse 5, through Jesus Christ. Christian, Christ is your confidence, right? We look to him because we have nothing else to boast in. So if you've come this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Christ, right? If I hope you've learned something about how Christians are to live together, what's to mark them out. But I want you to grasp this morning that what you most need to do is you need to look to Christ and to know that there is no life acceptable to God except that life lived for the purpose of glorifying him through Jesus Christ. There is no other way, all of our best efforts, all of our best deeds, all in vain if we reject God's son. You realize God's countenance, it hinges upon your response to his son. He calls you as he's called on all of us to look away from ourselves and to look toward the son. So if you come as a non-Christian, look to the son. Look to the man, to Jesus Christ, who is a sacrifice for sinners. Look to him who is then raised to life, victorious over sin and death. Look not to yourself, look not to the world. You look to Christ, and in Christ, that's where you find life. As you repent of your sin, turning from it, and trusting wholly in him for salvation. If you've come as a non-Christian, that's the basic message you need. Genuine Christian community starts there, by looking to Christ, the sacrifice for sinners. Okay, so how do you spot the genuine article from the counterfeit? That's how we started this morning. Because there are lots of Christian churches that have sort of Christian in their name. And there are lots of pastors out there who would proclaim to teach God's will. So how do you see the counterfeit and distinguish the counterfeit from the real deal? Well, you hold it up. You hold the counterfeit up against the genuine article. That's what you do. And genuine Christian communities, they love one another. Not as the world loves. Not for convenience not for personal gain, but simply because they have first been loved by God and they want to give themselves in love for their spiritual family. But they also long for the word. They have this insatiable appetite for that living and enduring word of God. The word that has not just saved us, but that continually brings and works life within us. But then communities, genuine communities, also look to Christ. They look to him to understand their character, their circumstances, their calling. Christ, his own life, it sheds light on all of those things Those things for us. Right? God's about that great building project, living stones, each one of us in a spiritual house. Every man and woman, a brick, a part of that house. That's what God is doing in this body. And while those aren't the only things that would mark out genuine community, They are things that are essential to it. And it's the kind of community that God has called us to be. You know, as the winds of persecution begin, as they begin to howl about us, this is the kind of community we must increasingly be in here 
if we're ever going to weather the storms right out there. So are you a part of, of such a community? Why wouldn't you want to be a part of just such a community? Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you praise. And we give you praise that you reveal yourself to us in your word. Lord, that we can gather together and we can open up your word. And by you, Spirit, you make it clear to us. And you see how we're to live. How we're to display the love that you have showered upon us. How we are to display that to one another. Father, we pray increasingly that we would be marked as a body by this kind of love and this kind of longing and this kind of confidence and trust in your Son. God, make us to be the kind of body that would increasingly live like that, that our sacrifices, that our spiritual act of worship would be, it would be pleasing to you. And that as we live this way, and by the love we have for one another, oh, Father, we pray that the community of Fayetteville would come to know something about Jesus through us. In his name we pray. Amen.